Life Audio. But in 16, he says, I want to give you God-blessed eyes and God-blessed ears. Because many of us can just read the Bible, and if we don't have God-blessed eyes and God-blessed ears, we only hear what we want to hear, we only see what we want to see. I'm Jody Nisnik, and you're listening to So Much More. And after a quick word from our sponsors, my guest, Jessica Hooten Wilson, and I will be back to talk about why reading more than just scripture is an important spiritual discipline. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Jessica Hooten Wilson is the inaugural visiting scholar of liberal arts at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. She previously taught at the University of Dallas. And she is the author of several books, including The Scandal of Holiness, Giving the Devil His Due, and her newest book, which is called Reading for the Love of God, How to Read as a Spiritual Practice, which we're going to chat a little bit about today. So Jessica, thank you so much for making some space to be with us today. Absolutely. I I really can't wait to dive into this conversation. Yeah, me too. So, well, let's do it. So the premise of your book is that we as Christians really need to read more than just scripture. Mm -hmm. Now, to be clear, you aren't advocating against reading scripture. (laughs) That's also very important. But I'd love for you to tell us why you think it's really important for us to be reading more than scripture. Sure. Well, the scriptures themselves are born out of people who lived lives of culture in which God was highlighting how he was at work in their time and place all around them. And so even the composition of the Bible itself is growing out of God working in the lives of his people. And you see this, especially in the New Testament, where you see Paul drawing on the poetry that he knows or the poetry that his readers were listening to. Um, You get to hear Jesus talking to crowds about drawing from their lives and the things that were cultural for them in the ways that he tells stories and the ways that he brings these things uh, to life. And what I've realized is in my own studies, my reading of scripture has given me a better view of literature. And then my reading of literature has actually allowed me to see things in scripture mm. that I had not before. And so I want to be able to grant other people the same kind of dual vision in which everything becomes more, you know, more glorifying of God. Like we get to see God more and he becomes bigger and uh, more amazing in our eyes because of the ways that we read. Mm -hmm. So when did you first fall in love with reading literature other than scripture? For me, it was both at the same time. I mean, I was 
six or seven years old reading the Bible at night and poetry in my bed. And then I was writing and back and forth. I was, you know, leading Bible studies when I was 10 years old, I would sneak away and like go to church and like crawl through the nursery window, (laughs) leave my own little Bible studies (laughs) when I was a kid. Um, I very much was just always drawn to the two passions of knowing God's word and then also writing and reading books. Mm. And those things were just very much a part of me. I thought I was going to become a preacher's wife and write novels. And those are the two things that I thought I would do because I just loved both so much. Yeah, I love that. And I love how God had different plans for you. I think that's so true is that we we try to figure out how do all of our passions fit together? And then we think, okay, so that's what we're going to do. That's what we'll be. Right. And I, I mean, did you even have a model of someone doing what you're doing today, being a professor and you know, was that even, or was it just, oh, well, let's see, I'm a woman, so I can do these things. How, well, tell me a little bit about that for a moment. So for me, I knew that when I left college, I I definitely wanted to still write fiction. I wanted to write novels. I wanted to write poetry. I wanted to publish all those things. I I would say my, my models were dead. They were Dorothy Sayers and C.S. Lewis. Those are, that's who I wanted to be when I grew up. (laughs) And so I knew that I needed to know more. And so I went to get a doctorate, not with the goal really of being a professor, but because I just didn't know enough. And I constantly found myself needing to know more. And this was the best environment to continue that kind of education. So my desire was that direction. And as I learned more and more, I just kept wanting to share it. You know, I, Mm -hmm. the mantra of, you know, to know Christ and make him known, those things are so intimately connected. It wasn't enough to be filled up with everything I was studying. I wanted to put it out there. So when I became a professor, I was getting to share with my students so much, but I was finding a disconnect between what I was sharing in the classroom and what I was seeing in my church family and what I was seeing with my friends in their own churches mm. and realizing the same things I was doing in the classroom. Why, why not share it more broadly? How could I give it to more people? I mean, even right now I'm using reading for the love of God. I'm teaching a Sunday school class with it as we walk through how to read the Bible and how to read literature and how does that help us read the Bible? And and we're doing that there. So I, I took this model of professor and kind of hopefully opened it up. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't say what you teach at the outset. So tell us what, what are you teaching at Pepperdine? So I'm not teaching at Pepperdine. I have an interesting job right now at Pepperdine. I, I should be teaching there more in the future. But right now, what I've been doing is going to the different classes and going. So I'm in religion classes and bringing short stories in. I'm going into business classes and teaching poetry. I'm going into the great books classes and talking about how to read or I'm teaching philosophy of Plato. And really having a chance to to span the connect the connections between all of the different silos that happens at universities and say like, what is our whole Christian mission? How are we all connected? What does it mean to have these freeing arts be taught in all these different classes? And so I'm getting to learn about what my colleagues are doing, but also get to show them the things that, that literature and theology can bring to the classroom. Oh, wow. I love that. I'm so excited that you're doing that. And what an amazing opportunity that you're getting to go to all of those places and help thread things together, which I think is just one of the things that God does. And yes, you know, he's not compartmentalized. He is not divided up the world into nice little segments and classes and degrees. 
everything fits together. And so it seems like you're getting to do that, which I just love. Yes. I'm, well, I'm grateful that Pepperdine is so inventive and so dedicated to their Christian mission to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Me too. So, okay. You start off by telling us that there, there is a Christian way of reading (laughs) and I would love to know what, define that for us. Tell us what, what that is. What do you mean? Yeah. The book started with just kind of a tentative, like placeholder title of how to read as a Christian. And so I was sharing online on social media that this is what I was working on. And the repulsion was like, the people were so adamant there is no Christian way to read. I would never read a book about how to read as a Christian. I mean, they were really pushing it. Really? I don't know if just the label Christian has been attached to too many things, right? So you have, do you have a Christian way of changing tires? Do you have a Christian way, right? Is is it one of those things that it's going to lose its meaning if we attach it to all we do? Instead, where I was coming from was more of the Colossians you know, writing the letter to the Colossians in which he says, like, everything that you do, do for the glory of God, whatever work you do, you do for the glory of God. Well, when it comes to reading, what does it look like to read for the glory of God? Hmm. And how is it that those devoted Christians from our past going back hundreds and hundreds of years, they were all trying to figure this out. What wisdom have we forgotten Hmm. that we can employ now and maybe get beyond our own ways of reading that are very limited by our time and place. And a lot of them have been corrupted to, to be honest, because they've been separated from the church and they've become very worldly ways of reading, right? Uh, a kind of skepticism that mm-hmm. is unhealthy, a way of reader centric, which is, you know, this autonomous individualism, which is not found in scripture. And if we go to the scriptures with these worldly ways of being versus with the wisdom of the tradition, are we even understanding what the Bible is mm. saying? Okay. So can you give me an example? This is so interesting. I'd love to hear. Yeah. I mean, does, does something come to mind for you? Well, I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot that we could walk through the scriptures. Just the, um, the idea that you would stand over a scripture and pull out what you want. Mm. Right. Just to take like a cut and paste mode of, okay, what does this say to me? Now, what it says to me is a relevant question. And I talk about this in my book, but it's the third step in a, in a series of questions in which we first try to understand the whole and what does the text actually say? And even for example, when this last week I was teaching Genesis one in my Bible class at, at Sunday school, and we were doing reading for the love of God. So I was talking about what does the text actually say there? And they're like, well, God creates order out of disorder. I'm like, that's not what it literally says. What does it literally say? And it's like, uh, God created. Yeah, let's start there. God created. God said, let there be light. God said, God spoke, right? And so once we slow down in our ways of attending. I mean, um, I'm guessing with what you do with the podcast, Lectio Divina, it's so much about attention. It's so much about letting go and removing the self and really attending to what's there rather than assume we know what Genesis 1 says and we're going to just apply our interpretation first so that we get something out of it. If we slow down and attend, God might reveal something to us that we hadn't seen before, that we didn't know before. Mm-hmm. We might actually find ourselves exalting him in a completely new way with that kind of slowing down and self-emptying. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's so true. We have a danger of of having learned too much in some ways or having digested other people's interpretations 
And so that's where that's coming from. Instead of going back and stripping it all away and saying, what do the words actually say? Spirit, what do you want me to notice mm-hmm. and see? And that is part of this process of Lectio and, and helping uh, what I'm hoping for listeners to this podcast is that we just take a moment to hear God's word. And especially if we know the passage to just right. take all of our, you know, assumptions and our presuppositions away from it and let the spirit show us what he wants us to show us today. Let him do that work. We're going to pause here for a quick break, and then we'll be right back. So let's talk about the passage that we meditated on since we're talking about scripture. And I asked you, okay, what do you suggest that we meditate on? And you suggested Matthew 13, which is this really interesting passage of the disciples coming and questioning Jesus. And I'll just read it for us real quick. So Jesus' disciples came to him and they asked him, why do you use parables when you talk to people? He replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. That is why I use these parables for they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. And then we skipped ahead to verse 16 and he says this, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your eyes because they hear. So there's a lot packed into that passage. I'm curious, first of all, why did you choose it? And what does this help us learn about Jesus and even just reading? Yeah. So I enjoy the message translation of this. So I do a lot of different translations. I don't stick with one. And one of the reasons is because I'm still um, a toddler when it comes to my knowledge of Greek. And therefore, I don't I don't have an understanding of the text the way that I wish I do. And so I'm constantly looking at how did people translate this? How did they count mm-hmm. this? And, and I start with that because Eugene Peterson, having his knowledge of Greek, he tells this particular passage, he relates it in a way that became almost the entire um, theme or thesis or key to my book. Hmm. When the disciples asked Jesus Jesus in Peterson's translation, it's, why do you tell stories? Hmm. And I love that. Why does Jesus tell stories? We're so used to hearing what a parable is. And a parable sounds like this religious thing that belongs in a religious context. But when when you take it and reduce it to just, why, Jesus, why do you tell stories? And you start meditating on the story and this Bible, which is this biblio, this collection of stories and God living the story out. And we start to kind of open up and unpack what that means for what we're called to be as Christians. If we're we're imitating Jesus, we're a storied people, mm. both those who receive stories and tell stories in order to understand things that are beyond us, things that are that are higher than us. And Jesus relates that here where he talks about wanting, and this is again, Peterson's words, but in 16, he says, I want to give you God blessed eyes and God blessed ears Mm. because many of us can just read the Bible. And if we don't have God blessed eyes and God blessed ears, we only hear what we want to hear. We only see what we want to see. And that's not following scripture. That's not following Jesus. That's not what he's asking us to do. That's the Pharisees. That's becoming blind Mm -hmm. and deaf and 
Instead, he's trying to take us away from our sinful inclination to be pharisaical when it comes to reading and instead open us up uh, to to receive much more than that. It feels like you're speaking about being attentive to what's really happening versus, again, assuming something mm-hmm. about the text or assuming something about Jesus or even the literature we're reading, but really being open mm-hmm. to what's happening in it. Well, and in this passage, I mean, he talks about the secrets, right? And this gift and this insight and this idea of readiness and receptivity. I mean, there's all these virtues to the readers that is lifted in this passage in which Christ is saying it's requiring this of you, but it's also going to give this to you. There's, there's an agency here in which you have to go to the text, but you also have to go in a certain way that is able to receive you can't go and make something happen. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's um, it's preparing you for the virtue that you will need that you will also receive. And that's mm-hmm. one of those um, fun paradoxes of the Christian life, right. Is to do the spiritual practices, but know that the spiritual practices aren't actually getting you the grace, but you will receive grace when you're doing the spiritual practices. And that's what he's talking about. Reading is as a spiritual practice in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, and you, so you do talk about Lectio Divina in your book, which, you know, of course I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm in on this. Keep going. You're yeah. talking my language. Okay. So we just talked about Eugene Peterson and I, I love this quote from your book. So I just want to read it and then maybe you can talk a little bit more about it, but it's meditation on the Bible should lead us not to selfish observations or fanciful conclusions, but to becoming better friends with the presence within the book. Christ himself. Mm. And then you quote Eugene Peterson, who says, meditation moves us from looking at the words of the text to entering the world Mm. of the text, which really you, we've been talking exactly about this for the last few minutes, Mm -hmm. but just tell me a little bit more about this process of meditation for you. Even, you know, how do you do this in your own personal journey with the Lord? Yeah. I, so one of the things I loved is getting to discover the way that medieval writers did this because it was very visceral. And too often our ideas of reading, they're so formed by 20th and 21st century ways of reading in which we we only think of reading as a solitary effort in which we're quiet and we're studious, but you're looking at a word. And what Peterson's drawing from is this medieval tradition in which you have meditation as ruminatio, where you're tasting and eating the words. Mm. And so for me, it means reading aloud Mm. to viscerally taste, hear, and see simultaneously. It's in a full embodied experience because if you're only doing one of those things, if you're, and I do, I do listen to the Bible on audible too, right? But if you're only doing that, or if you're only reading it quietly, which I also do as well, it's not the full embodied at, at that moment. So meditation for me, the way that it, you enter that world is you bring these words to life. You exhale them. They, they give, they receive life <laughs> and you get to hear them and you get to see them on the page. I mean, all of the senses are being combined in that moment. And that kind of meditation takes you to a different place when you're reading mm-hmm. the words so closely and having to understand and have to say them like the different characters and have to read the poetry with the the different emotions that's going on. I mean, it really does become a more visceral experience. And in that sense, it's meditative. It's not just abstract 
or ethereally or just in your mind meditative. It's mm-hmm. fully embodied is what meditation should look like. Mm-hmm. You know, and it makes me think about how scripture was an oral tradition mm-hmm. and the written word of God is something we take for granted in so many ways, but you know, our ancestors long ago, either they didn't have the written word of God and they had to depend on each other to tell the stories and tell them accurately, or there was one text for a community mm-hmm. and it was read aloud. And so it was almost, so you're talking about this, you know, embodied experience. And I think originally it was also intended to be a communal experience where we yes. hear and and taste and see the goodness of God together as we are learning his word. Well, most of what's addressed to Christian readers in the New Testament is addressed to the church over and Mm -hmm. over again. It's not addressed to the individual. The church means all of us collectively. And so when you're trying to understand what does this text mean for me, the question is not just about you, it's about you as part of the church. What does it mean that you are the body of Christ? That's a communal thing. That's not simply an individual thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we, I think we've too much prized one over the other to the loss of the other. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis famously says, like, if you put first things second, you're also going to lose second things, you know, by, mm. but if you put first things first, right, the church, the body of Christ first, and then secondarily, what is my role or participation in that you get both, mm. but if you try to put yourself before the body of Christ, right. Your interpretation is going to change. You don't hear it communally. You don't think about it communally. You think about it individually. And I think you lose the double reading that could be there. Yeah. That's such a great reminder because I, I mean, and we've all read this, heard this before, but the Western way of thinking is so fiercely individualistic Mm -hmm. that it is hard for us to see it as the, the body of Christ, as what, what happens to me impacts you. Like I am a finger on the body and, and you are, you know, and so whatever, whatever body part we want to assign ourselves, you know, and to be a well-functioning body, we all have to be thriving and, and doing our, our little piece of that. And so, yeah, it's just such a really good reminder again. Thank you for all of that. You know, one of the things that you talk about that I loved also was about how important it is to remember what we read and how there're just a lot of hurdles to us i would say even just as modern ways of living i mean i don't have to remember anything anymore i don't even know my daughter's phone numbers so <laughs> you know uh yeah. what but so tell us about some of the hurdles that you've discovered to remembering and and then how we can overcome them what and maybe even back up before you even answer that and tell us why is remembering even important mm-hmm. yeah so for the tradition going back to Jewish culture, remembering was a moral responsibility. I mean, remembering was part of a call Mm -hmm. to be a Jewish person. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. if you go back and you read the Old Testament, everything God is doing is about remembering, right? Set up these memorial stones, put a blue tassel, you know, onto your robe so that you can remember. It's constantly, God is trying to give them ways to remember. Remembering then becomes about this. I'm going to break up the word for you. Remember right? To bring back the, the members of the body. Mm-hmm. It, it's a re-presencing, it's a re-bodying. And so every Sunday that we remember, we are literally coming back 
to the wholeness, to the unity you're talking about. Um, when we take the body of Christ, that's a, re- that's a remembering, but it's also a physical remembering, mm-hmm. <laughs> like pretty, bringing the members back. And so for reading, reading should be that same kind of activity, constantly bringing the presence, the body back to mind and uh, to mind, heart, soul. I mean, all of it is going to be connected here. This is not just a studious or scholastic enterprise. This is very much um, something that should take over your whole life. And the best way you can remember is to live out the things that you know, right? To live out of that wisdom and to live out those desires that are hopefully being formed in you by your by your reading activity. Now, I, I think too often the way we think of memory limits us and scares us. Mm. Because if you were in English classes, you know, um, like I was in public school, it was take this quiz. And do you remember what you're supposed to remember, meaning what the teacher thinks you should remember? And if you don't remember those things, then you didn't really read the book well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that process of, of thinking of memory in that way is intimidating. You're like, I can't remember what I read. Right. That's actually not what I'm talking about. (laughs) That's so helpful. (laughs) That is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is remembering becomes, so you repeat the things you read. So you read the Bible every single year, or at least, you know, I I would recommend that's something that you have um, because you always have to remember over and over again, which means Mm rereading. And you're going then to, you're filling up yourself with things that you can't necessarily cognitively register are there but they will be there when you need them mm-hmm. to be. God can't draw on what you haven't put in. Mm, good. But if you have been reading the Psalms over and over and over again, like right now, you might not be able to say, well, Psalm one begins with what line exactly, right? But you might know, blessed is the man who walks in the way of the Lord. Like that might come to you when it needs to come to mm-hmm. you. And God can draw on that, even if you can't, cite the lines or answer the quiz correctly. Right. That's that's not what God is looking for. God is looking for the life that knows blessed is the man who walks in my ways. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So good. I just, when you were saying that, I was just like, the spirit does that. He is faithful to help mm-hmm. us remember what we need to know in that moment. But if there's nothing to draw on, we're, we're asked, I mean, now listen, God can do whatever he wants. I'm not <laughs> going to put him past a miracle there, right. but the way he's designed our mind is that we should be constantly, and he even tells us this in Deuteronomy. I mean, this is the not forget the Lord your God. Yes, yeah. and and as you go, as you sit down, as you eat, as you sleep, constantly, because he knows we are a forgetful people, and we have to be reminding ourselves, remembering. I love that you broke down that word for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have to, or we will forget. And when we are faithful to do that, even you were just talking about that spiritual discipline practice, when we are faithful to read his word, he will help us remember it yes. when we need it. Yes, absolutely. Well, you look at the most, so I always talk about how the, the Bible is a collection of really bad people, but a really good God, <laughs> right? That's the majority yes. of what it actually is. But one of the most faithful humans in scripture is Mary. And yeah. Mary, what's the first thing that happens when she says, you know, here I am, let it be done to your handmaiden, right? She, yeah. she blurts out scripture. So good. Bring, like the spirit can draw on what is in her to bring out and bring forth. She comforts herself with the words of God by the grace of the spirit in that moment. 
And if, if she didn't have that, she wouldn't have been asked to be the mother of God, right? <laughs> she wouldn't, she wouldn't be that right. figure for us if she had not already lived this life of faithfulness in which she knew and remembered yes. the scriptures and was able to call them up. Yeah. God was very to. aware of who he was choosing to be the mother of God. <laughs> Yeah, someone who already meditated on the word and had the word yeah. within her so that when she physically had the word within her, right? Those things mm. were connected. Oh, wow. Right? She's yeah, already that's ready. so good. Okay, so you give us this invaluable list of great books that we should start with. And so I want to know, well, we've been talking a lot about scripture. So I want to just talk about kind of these great works of literature that you point us to how did you choose these books? <laughs> and then I also want to know, yeah. like, are there books that you say, yeah, don't, don't spend your time on those things. And how do you choose that? How do you make that discernment and decision? So, so this is very much a wisdom question. So one of the major reasons I added this book list is because we don't all share the same canon. And, and that's just not one of the things that has continued on. Instead, we have pockets where a certain canon is revered and we have pockets where certain reading lists and we don't have a shared universal worldwide. These are all the books that we should read. That's just not something that um, is part of our cultural memory anymore. Mm. And so what I tried to do was draw from the overarching collective, you know, if you go around the world who's going to say or, or or recognize some of these same sources. So I picked some of those to kind of begin with, right? Um, Homer, Lao Tzu, just some of the big names that I think are, are echoed everywhere. And then some of it's going to be picking and choosing. There are people who think you should read Piers Plowman. I've never read Piers Plowman. Um, so I, and I don't, I haven't really felt a lack <laughs> without having Piers Plowman in my life. So I, I think that there are texts that people are going to insist on and they're going to know well. And their passion is is kind of like introducing you to a friend, right? If you have friends who love certain books and it has made them who they are, then you're going to want to read those texts. Mm -hmm. And that's how you're going to know what to read or not read. Um, it's not just about preference. It's more about friendship. I think, I think we should consider it more about knowing certain people rather than treating it like liking certain ice creams. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not just whatever you like or don't like, but it's more about what relationships do you have and when are certain books brought to you? And should you try to get to know them beyond the surface, right? When you first get introduced to a friend. So if we think of books in that way, then we can kind of look through that list and, and start trying to read some of them and um, ask what the spirit could be doing and follow that leading and be discerning and um, read in certain ways that those texts either open up to us or not. But but those are the friends that I've made over the years that have proven true that I would love to recommend to people and could and could do so well. So what would you recommend, you know, for somebody that feels a little intimidated by some of these yeah. great works of literature is I mean, I, I feel like the whole premise of your book is that this is a spiritual discipline. So reading mm -hmm. these great thinkers and letting them help us see the world, maybe just a little differently than we see it right now, actually opens us up to understanding the truth of God, because all truth is God's truth. So, but what, what, what would be your advice uh, to somebody that wants to do this, but feels a little scared? Well, I, I would I would say first of all there's there should not be an English teacher sitting over your shoulder. I mean there that that, that doesn't exist. Yeah, that's so, helpful. Right? <laughs> so you can 
you can dive into this knowing that you're reading for the love of God, which is should put you in a different disposition. So for example, if you started with the Odyssey, if you're looking to see God at work in the Odyssey and, and throughout the Christian tradition, especially early tradition, looking at um, St. Basil or Augustine or any of those early church fathers, they're writing about Homer. I mean, they they thought the riches of Homer would help us so much in understanding the Bible. They they just write on this. They assumed mm. it. Um, they, you know, some of them apologize and prove it, but, but for the most part, that was just something that they knew. And, and there is, there is interaction between, uh, the world of the Odyssey and the world of the Jewish nation and, um, getting to see some of those things. If you're looking at it in that sense, and you're not looking at it like, oh, I have to know what the Greek poetry is doing. And I have to remember all these names and, um, why is there a list of ships in the Iliad? And you know, you don't have to do, you don't have to read along those lines, you read for where am I seeing virtue? Where am I seeing Christ? Where am I um, seeing a beautiful line? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna highlight that and pocket that away because those words ministered to me today. Those words showed me how to see the world around me differently today. Those words reminded me of what it means to be a good person. Um, I think if you if you read in that direction and don't read as though you have to answer a quiz at the end of it it should be less intimidating. <laughs> yeah. When you said that, don't have your English teacher looking over your shoulder. Like literally I felt anxiety just released from me. I was like, oh, I'm not going to be quizzed on what she or he thinks is I should be learning from this. Right. right. That's, that's exactly right. Um, and, and I think I'm an anomaly when it comes to English teachers because I just, well, first of all, I don't even like using the phrase English teacher because I, I don't teach mostly English. I teach all things that are written in all these different languages. Um, and so I don't think that that way of looking at a teacher is correct either, kind of siloing them off like we were talking about before. But there is a way of reading that should be freeing and should help us free others and be freed, like you said, from from kind of the prison or the um, limited vision that we have without that reading. Mm-hmm. So if reading opens us up that way, rather than closes us down and makes us feel like we have to to live up to some person's expectations of what did we get from this text? And did we get the text right? And did I understand it correctly? Those are just the wrong kind of questions to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for saying all of that. Well, Jessica, we need to close. And so I'm curious, what would you say is your favorite book? Oh, favorite book of all time. Um, I mean, my go-to is Flannery O'Connor. So I immediately think Flannery O'Connor Dostoevsky, Dante. I don't know if I can like <laughs> divide into one, but um, Flannery O'Connor's <laughs> collected stories, Dante's Divine Comedy, and the Brothers Karamazov. I think are are three of the works of genius that I carry inside me all the time. Well, those are great recommendations, Jessica. Thank you so much for making space to have this conversation with me today. It really has been life giving. Oh, good. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Well, friends, I'm going to put links in the show notes where you can find Jessica and links to get her great book. So you'll definitely want to grab that. Literally, the back with the whole book list is so, so good. I'm so excited to have that. So thank you for doing that work and compiling that for me. I feel like it's really just for me. So thank you for that. Absolutely. <laughs> and hey, friends, I also just want to take a quick second to thank the team of Life Audio for their partnership with us. And if you go to lifeaudio.com, you'll see there are dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network, shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and even this one on scripture meditation and thoughtful conversations. So as always, I do want to thank you again for joining me and Jessica today on so much more 
because we really do believe Jesus has so much more to say to us, and we are creating space to listen. Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take, or art to make, or perhaps businesses to build, it's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. If you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, search and follow the Messenger Movement Podcast on your favorite podcast platform today or lifeaudio.com.